Well, take your Bible and open it to the Gospel of John. We want to return to John this morning, and I want to return to John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. I've called it the incarnation of the Word. I think we're going to need this week and next week on it. This week is communion, so our time will be a bit abbreviated. But as always, we open the Word of God. It says this, and John, you follow along as I read John 1, 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom He said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He, or ranks before me because He was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What a precious, precious text. Now, we've been looking at what we call the prologue for a formal word in John's gospel. That prologue runs from chapter 1, verse 1, down through verse 18. It is probably one of the most powerful theological introductions written in all of the New Testament. And he brings that section to a close in the prologue in 1, 14 through 18 by revealing the identity of the light of the world. In fact, just to encourage you, if you get the prologue, you can understand the whole gospel of John. Now, as you zero your eyes in on verse 14, you can underline that if you would like it. If you do that in your Bible, it says there in verse 14 that the word became flesh. The word became flesh. It is certainly one of the greatest statements in the entire Bible on the incarnation of Christ. In fact, in many ways, the rest of the 20 chapters of John will explain this verse. Now, you can tell I titled it the incarnation of the word, and I just spoke about the incarnation of Christ Maybe if you've been in Christ, you're familiar with that term. It's just a theological term. But what the word incarnation means is literally in the Greek, it just means in flesh, okay? It just means in flesh. And so when you see verse 14, that the word became flesh, we call that the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. He became flesh or literally in flesh, Now, when you scan throughout the Bible, there are a number of texts that speak of this issue of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. For example, it says in 1 John 4, 2, that he has come in the flesh. There's statements like this all over the word of God. In Romans 8, 3, speaking of the person of Christ, it says that he came in the likeness of, of sinful flesh. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says of Christ that he was manifested in the flesh. 1 Peter chapter 4 1 says that he suffered in the flesh. 
1 Peter 3.18 says that he was put to death in the flesh. It says in Ephesians 2.14, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall. Statements like this all over the word of God. Colossians 1.22, he made reconciliation in his body of flesh by his death. And this morning, here in 14, verse 14, the word became flesh. So this is a doctrine that we must know. This is a truth of Scripture that we have to know. And so by the doctrine of the incarnation, we mean that the eternal word in 1-1 or the second person of the Trinity became a man or assumed human flesh at a point in time without ever ceasing to be God. That in many ways can serve as a definition that the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, became a man or assumed human flesh at a point in time without ever ceasing to be God. Wayne Grudem, the theologian, made this statement on the doctrine of the incarnation. You might, I don't know if you might challenge it, but it is thought-provoking. Grudem said this of the incarnation. He said, quote, it is by far, by far, the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. He said, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe, end of quote. That's quite a statement, So in light of our day, people sometimes ask me, let me just put this in. Scott, what do you think about the politics going on today? What do you think about all that's happening in our own county here? What do you think about the issue with gay marriage? I think we need to address those things, and we will at a certain point. But I'm telling you that when when you see this doctrine, this is what you need to know. This is what your children need to know. In fact, J.I. Packer, in a little different framework, said, The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. He said, did Packer, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And then he said, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. And and I thought, I'd have to agree with him. I mean, he's not saying it's fiction. This is true here. But he's, he's basically saying this is the most fantastic truth in all of the Scripture is the incarnation. So what does then John the Apostle say about the incarnation? For our time this morning, I want to look at three transforming truths on the incarnation that should bring us to belief in the person of Christ, okay? Three transforming truths on the doctrine of the incarnation that bring us to belief in Christ. 
Look at verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the first transforming truth is the miracle of the incarnation. The miracle of the incarnation. The opening five words in verse 14 capture the incarnation in a very miraculous way. Now, look there in the scripture in verse 14. It says that the word became flesh. Now, as we look back in the weeks past, the divine word, the eternal word of verses 1 through 3, the final word, if you will, from God and his son Jesus Christ, here it says, became flesh. So, the eternal logos, that's the word for word in Greek, logos, who is God, did not, beloved, merely appear uh, like a man. He became a man. Philippians 2, as you well know, says that he emptied himself, taking on the likeness, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so here, the word became flesh, God, in in this most outstanding miracle, took on humanity. We, We could say it this way, that humanity, right, was added to his deity. In other words, the infinite became finite. Eternity entered into time. The invisible became visible in Christ. And the creator, if you can think of it this way, entered into his own creation. The word was in the beginning with God, The Word who was God became flesh. God became man. Now, he uses that phrase, uh, the Word became flesh. He actually uses kind of a, a shocking term here to describe the miracle of the incarnation. Now, it says there in verse 14, it he became flesh. He doesn't mean by that sinful flesh. Sometimes in the scripture, flesh is a moral sin, but he doesn't mean it in that way. This is a reference here when he became flesh to our physical being. And so he came in sinful weakness, um, not in, excuse me, not in sinful weakness, but he came in human nature. Now, when you look down at verse 14 again, when it says the word became flesh, it does not mean that when he became flesh, that our Lord Jesus Christ ceased to be the eternal word when he came into the world. It does mean, though, however, that he became fully man. And so when the word became flesh, his deity, as we know, was not abandoned. It was not reduced. He did not cease to be God. When he came into the world, certainly he emptied himself. I could say it this way in John 17, 5, of his outward glory, okay? And in that sense, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he became poor for us. But this does not at all imply that he ceased to exercise the divine functions uh, which he had be, been his before. 
So the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ then was not a diminishing of his deity, but it was an inquiring of his manhood, if you will. So the incarnation, I want to be clear with you, uh, means that the two distinct natures of Christ, the divine and the human, are united, if you will, in one person, Jesus Christ. So it would be proper to say that Jesus Christ is not two people, okay? He's not God and man. He is one person, the God-man. That is who Jesus Christ is. And no wonder the Apostle Paul could write of the doctrine of the incarnation in 1 Timothy 3.16, where he said, Great is the mystery of godliness, he who was revealed in the flesh. So here's the miracle of the incarnation. Sam Storms, speaking of the birth of Christ, often when we think about he became flesh, you'll, you'll hear that theme at Christmas time, obviously, when he came to earth. But Sam Storms put it this way. He said, the king of kings sleeping in a cow pen, the creator of the oceans and seas and rivers afloat in the womb of his mother. He who once was surrounded by the glorious stereophonic praise of adoring angels now hears the lowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep, the stammering of bewildered shepherds. He who spoke the universe into being now coos and cries from the robes of eternal glory to the rags of swaddling clothes. The one whose being fills the galaxies confined to the womb of a peasant girl. Infinite power, he said, learning to crawl. It is the miracle of the incarnation. The word became flesh. But look secondly, though, at the manifestation of the incarnation. The manifestation of the incarnation in this most amazing statement. Look at it in verse 14. The word became flesh. And then this little powerful line, and dwelt among us. I love that phrase. He came, no doubt, but it wasn't that he just appeared. Literally, he dwelt among us. The the Greek word is skenu, and and what it means is just that it literally means this, that he pitched his tent with us. In other words, he didn't just come and then leave. He dwelt with us. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. He pitched his tent with us, if you will, for 33 years. The word came to dwell. Now, what's fascinating here in the text, and I want to take a moment with this with you so that we don't read this and skip this. That concept of the word dwelling with us is found throughout the Old Testament. And often that word dwelt in the Old Testament was associated with the tabernacle. And when you look in the Old Testament about the tabernacle, it was the place that was built, and it was built for this reason. One of the many reasons is that God's presence, 
would dwell with the nations. In fact, let me show you in your Bible. Look back at Exodus for a moment here. Turn there. I want you to see this with your eyes. But the book of of Exodus, okay, and go to Exodus chapter 25. I want to take you to a, a couple of statements here that kind of link, if you will, what it means that he dwelt among us, John 1, 14, to the context of, I think, out of which this scripture was written. You'll recall when they were building the tabernacle in chapter 25, here the writer said in verse, let me see if I can find that, in in verse 8, he, he, he said, the Lord spoke to Moses in 25.1 and 25.8, let them make me a sanctuary, and here's the key, that I may dwell in their midst. God instructed Moses, instructed the nation through Moses to build a sanctuary. And one of the reasons it was built, you can see it there, is that I may dwell in their midst. Look over again at Exodus. Turn just a few pages to chapter 29. Chapter 29, verse 46. This is where the words richness comes out, that he dwelt among us. He dwelt among the nation of Israel, and he did, did God, by his presence in their midst. Look at 29, verse 46 of Exodus, where it says, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And here was his desire, 2946, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So often then, I'm going to make this link, God's presence, okay, how how would he dwell with them? How would would in, in the invisible God dwell with his people? Well, often in the Old Testament, he dwelt with his people and it was put on display through a visible manifestation of what we call his glory. And he would reveal himself and reveal his presence by way of a bright light. And that bright light was called by the Jewish people the Shekinah glory of God. And as I mentioned, it appeared in the temple and in, excuse me, in the tabernacle first and then later in the temple. Look back to Exodus chapter 24. Let me show you this. It's one of my favorite themes of the scripture. Do you remember when Moses had to go up and, and make, God was going to give him the covenants? And so look at chapter 24 in verse 15. It says there, then Moses went up to the mountain. Now watch this phrase, and you've seen this before. Uh, The cloud covered the mountain. Now, Now you say, what is that? It's the presence of God. As Moses went up to the mountain, God is going to reveal himself, and he reveals himself in a cloud covering the mountain. Look at verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight 
of the people of God. So as Moses went up into that mountain, the cloud came in, if you will, and that cloud, verse 17, was like the devouring fire on top of the mountain. So throughout Scripture, God's glory was put on, if you will, visible manifestation. And often this manifestation was in the form of a glory cloud. Now, I can go into other manifestations. Jesus Christ would, would appear in places in the Old Testament as an expression of God, but often it came in this glory cloud, if you will. And it was often a cloud of fire, pillar of fire, so forth, a visible representation of God's presence with his people. And as I mentioned, the Jewish people called this the Shekinah glory. And when that glory came, it was God, if you will, dwelling with his people. So go now to Exodus chapter 40. I'm just going to make these links for you. Do you remember he had given them all the instruction their Grace Church of the Valley, to build the tabernacle. And after they had constructed it, which is funny, if you want to read that, you can read about what we look at Charlie's role as Bezalel, because God filled people with the Spirit, and he gave Bezalel a spirit of excellence to build the temple. I'm always fascinated in the Word of God that when God got somebody to do something, there was a skill accompanying that uh, that command that was given, and he gave Bezalel, and then they went through all the furnishings of the temple, all the, the, you know, the boards, if you will, all the utensils, all the, the coverings, and all the things for the priest. But watch this in 4033. It says there that he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. Now, here's the key. So Moses finished the work. Then, look at verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then it says, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then the people did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What a a picture there. It, you say, what was that? I mean, they, they couldn't even minister. They couldn't even move within the temple. Why? Because that cloud came and that fire was over it. And the people knew that that was a manifestation of the presence of God. In fact, one more. Look, look over in your Bible to Second Chronicles. There is a whole theme on this. Look over to Second Chronicles chapter 5. And of course, as you go over to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, it moved, if you will, this presence of God from the tabernacle to later in Solomon's days to the temple. And then you see this statement in 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, and in verse 13, when they were dedicating this, it was... The duty, it says in 5.13, of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the songs was, 
And when the song was raised, the trumpets and the cymbals and the other musical instruments in praise to the Lord. And here's the statement, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And it says the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a what cloud. So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. You say, well, what is that? Well, it's Shekinah glory. Well, what is that? It's the presence of God. You know that he doesn't have flesh and bones. He's a spirit in John 4, 24. So to make himself known in the Old Testament, he would appear, if you will, in the presence of this cloud. In fact, look over at the next chapter in 2 Chronicles 6, in verse 1. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said... I love this phrase, that he would dwell in thick darkness. And I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Very well, the tabernacle back in Exodus, the temple, it was a place where God's presence dwelt. Look over at chapter 7. Just the next page, 2 Chronicles 7, 1 and 2. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer in 7, 1, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And so beloved, the cloud was a visible presence or a glorious manifestation of God among his people. And the reason in the Old Testament that the tabernacle and later the temple was termed the dwelling of God was because God's glory in the form of a cloud was the manifestation to God's people that he was there, that I am with you. You know, as I I think about as we work towards this new building, we just want God on display, right? That's our desire. We want his glory. We want the glory of Christ to be seen. We want people to come into that place and say, God is in this house. His person fills this. But watch this. Now, just a little footnote. It is one of the saddest things in all of the Old Testament. Because the glory of God, as I've mentioned, was the manifestation of his presence. But as the Old Testament goes on, the glory cloud, do you remember, began to move. And it left the temple. And you could just visit, visit, you know, visibly. You could go see this in Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel 11. The cloud began to depart from Israel. And there comes a place in the book of Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 11, where the cloud just left altogether. And do you remember over the temple, they wrote Ichabod. 
Ichabod. And what it meant is that the glory departed. And so this manifestation of God dwelling with his people because of the people's sin, that glory cloud left and it began to move in, in proportion to different places. And then finally, it was gone altogether. Now, let me, let me see if I can tie this together. Here's the point. The point being that God now has chosen to dwell with his people. Listen, not in a physical tabernacle or a temple or in a glory cloud, He's chosen to dwell with his people in a far more personal way. Listen, beloved, the word became flesh. God then has taken up residence in the person of his son. So look back to John now. It's a thrilling truth. So listen, you don't have to go back to the tabernacle. His presence is now put on display in his son. So you could read it this way. The word became flesh and it tabernacled among us. It dwelt among us. So the eternal word, deity, took on flesh and pitched his tent to live among men. The word, we can say, became flesh and took up residence with us. So that the writer of Hebrews would say of Christ that he is the radiance of his glory, speaking of Christ, the exact representation of his nature. Listen, there is this connection between the old and new from God's presence in that manifestation to that presence coming in the person of Christ. Now look at what John the Apostle says. It's incredible. Look back at 114. That word became flesh, it says, and dwelt among us. And then this statement, and we have seen his, what? Glory. John the Apostle, beloved, said that we have seen his glory. Now you might ask, what's he talking about there? There could be a couple of things that he's talking about. It could just be a description of the ministry of Jesus Christ, that when he ministered in his teaching, in his wisdom, in his compassion, in his miracles, that they saw his glory, if you will, his majesty in his earthly life. It could be that. In fact, look over just at John chapter 2, just for a second. Just turn the page. You remember after his first miracle on the wedding at Cana, it said, this is 2.11, the first of his signs Jesus did in in Cana of Galilee and manifested his, what, glory. And the disciples believed on him. So, beloved, just the miracles were a manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ. But I think there's something more here. I think there's something more here. In 14, it says, and we have seen his glory. I think John is taking us back to an event in his life, taking us back to an event where he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And on that Mount, Jesus Christ revealed his pre-incarnate glory. Let me show you Matthew chapter 17. I think this is what he's talking about. So you have to realize he's giving you an eyewitness account of the glory that he saw. Do you remember in 17.2, where he was on top of that mountain soon before he would go to the cross, 
It says in Matthew 17 too, he was, there's the phrase, transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to him, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will, make, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, when, you know, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I mean, you can imagine being on that mountain that day. That is an incredible text that we don't have time to go into. Jesus Christ, if you will, just peeled back his humanity. And he showed them his pre-incarnate glory, the glory that he had with his father before he became flesh. He took on humanity. But in the second person of the Trinity from all eternity, he, of course, is glorious. And he peeled back that glory and he gave them a shadow of what is to come. And so he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as lights. Now you say, well, who was there? Well, go back to 17.1. Look there. After six days, you know this, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and what? John. He was there. He was there. And so as you go back now, to John chapter 1 and verse 14, where he says there, and we have seen his glory. He's talking about being, I believe, on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus Christ showed them his pre-incarnate glory. He, of course, was one of the inner three, and he saw this. But as I read those names, there was also another one of the inner three, and his name was Peter. Would you go over just for a moment to Second Peter? Let me show you this, Second Peter. Chapter 1, Peter talks about this. He was there that day. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration, which I think must have been one of the greatest miracles of the New Testament. And here in 2 Peter chapter 1, here, Peter, the Apostle Peter, these are eyewitnesses, both John and Peter, says, we did not follow, and I'm in 116, 2 Peter, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What a statement there. What a statement. Peter was there. Peter saw this glory. We beheld his glory. So here's apostolic testimony to the majesty that they saw. And I'm thinking of John. Remember when we were there in 1 John 1, he says, that which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, which we've touched with our hands concerning life, and this life was made manifest. So the glory, listen, that the apostles saw was none other than the glory as the, as the only son from the Father. Look back now to John. Look back there. 
This is an incredible statement. There's so much here, it's hard to move, but I don't want to go too quick on this prologue. I think it will help us, but it says in 114, we have seen his glory. Watch this in 14. Glory as of the only son from the father. So we've seen the miracle of the incarnation, the manifestation of the incarnation, and third and finally here, as I just called it, the magnificence of the incarnation. The magnificence of the incarnation. You say, well, in what sense? Well, we'll let the other part become unpacked as we go. But here John the Apostle says, under the inspiration of the Scripture, glory as of, he says, the only Son of from the Father. And the key phrase there is it comes from the Father, but it's the only Son. And the Greek word here is monogenes. In other words, it's the glory given, if you will, by God the Father to His one and only unique Son. That's the phrase there. His only Son is monogenes. And the term doesn't refer to origin here. Rather, it describes our Lord's uniqueness. The one, the, the thought is the one and only of his kind. Christ here is the unique son of God. Certainly, we are, we are sons of God. We're children of God, but Christ is the unique son of God, and it was the same essential glory as the Father, except now he's become flesh. Instead of the glory cloud and instead of the fire coming, now he's tabernacled amongst us. That that phrase you've seen before, monogenes in 14, where he is the only son from the father. You remember it's in John 3.16. Look over there. We'll touch on it later. John 3.16, that famous statement, for God so loved the world that he gave, there's the phrase, his only son. His only son, his unique and one-of-a-kind son. Look at John chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So this is a magnificent statement affirming Christ's deity that he is unique, the one and only from God. Now, look back to John chapter 1. This amazing statement here. He says, glory is the only son from the Father. And then he, I think what he does is just highlight two attributes. He says, full of grace and truth, okay? Full of grace and and truth. In other words, he's the one and only of his kind, of the only of the kind son, totally unique. And in his uniqueness, he just cites a couple attributes. He says he's full of grace and truth. Carson made a wonderful point in his commentary because, you know, you just read that and you just, you just keep going. But he made the point that the Apostle John is most certainly drawing us, if you will, to Exodus 33 and 34. Do you remember there? In fact, let me just show you that. Go back over to Exodus. There's so many links here and richness in this text, but go back to Exodus 33, and I think you're well acquainted if you've been in Christ, and I'll turn you there. In Exodus 33, 
when Moses was begging God. Do you remember? And, and this is fascinating, I think. In 3318, do you remember that? When Moses said, Lord, please show me your what? Glory. Show me your glory. Now you say, what, what do you mean, show me your glory? Well, he, he's saying, Lord, show me your person. There's a lot of attributes of God. But beloved, if you put all the attributes together, which you can't do that because God's infinite, but the sum of his total character is his glory, okay? I told you before, that's the question I missed in my ordination from John MacArthur when he asked me what was the most preeminent attribute. And, you know, I, I think I was, get, I was on a roll. And then he, you know, he just on a roll. And then he asked me through the, what's Scott, what's the most preeminent attribute? You know, you pause there. You try to look a little smart. And uh, I came back after about 10 seconds. Well, certainly the love of God is so important. That, stop. That's wrong answer. Um, and then I paused again. Um, I think certainly his mercy is so big. Out of Romans 9. Th- stop. No, that's not the right answer. Um, and I, oh, I get where you're going. The forgiveness of God is the key. No, and I had about four or five, and I just finally had to say, I give up. Which one is it? And he said, it's the glory of God. He said, because when you put the attributes of God together, the, the glory is a summation, which you can't say summation. God never has any summation in his character because whatever he is, he is to an infinite degree. His love knows no bounds. His forgiveness knows no limits. So, but if you put them all together, you understand how I'm saying that. It's his glory. So look back now in 33, when Moses says, show me your glory, he's saying, show me your person. So look what happens then after that statement in verse 19. He said in 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now glance down to chapter 34. It said that the Lord, you get it now? He descended in the cloud What do you mean he descended? His person was showing himself there on that mountain. And he, it's unbelievable. Moses, it said that he stood with him there and he did God proclaim the name of the Lord. And remember the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. It says a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and underline this one and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He revealed, did he not, the names of God, the attributes of God, because the names and the attributes of God are an expression of his name, who he is in his person. And when he makes that statement there about the love and faithfulness, they spell out theologically if you will, the goodness of God's glory. And those two crucial words, okay, in the Hebrew, I I won't give them to you, okay, steadfast love, okay, and faithfulness are equated, as I'm trying to make this point, when John says that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. 
those words full of grace and truth are equated right here that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So listen, here's the point. The glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him, displaying that divine goodness characterized by grace and truth was the very same glory John saw in the Word made flesh. Beloved, if you've seen God the Father, Jesus said, you've, if you've seen me, you've seen what? God the Father. This is who he is. What was proclaimed to Moses as he passed by Moses in Exodus 33 and 34 is now seen visibly in the incarnate word by the eyewitnesses when John says, I've, we've seen his glory. He was full of grace and full of truth. And so here he is. This is our wonderful God, is it not? The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word, has become flesh. Now, just as, as we walk into communion, okay, I would make this statement to you. His glory was seen in his life, certainly. His glory was displayed in his miracles, certainly, John 2 through 11. But his glory was supremely seen in his death and in his resurrection, okay? And as you come to communion today, listen, I'm saying on the authority of the word of God that he became flesh to die for you. This is why the word of God is so wonderful. Listen, and, and you know this, his life doesn't save you It's his what? His death that saves you. And so he became flesh in order to go on the cross for you. Which, if you can fathom that and fathom the incarnation, you should walk out of here and say, I am a child of God. And Jesus Christ was given by God the Father to come to this earth to be the light of the world. And to die in your place, Paul said in Romans, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? He died for us. How could it be that infinite, glorious Savior, second person of the Trinity, takes on humanity for this purpose, to die on the cross for you? I'm thinking of Paul in Romans 8.32. 832, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God the Father gave God the Son to die in your place. In fact, it says in Hebrews of Christ that he is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Just think about this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ not only created the world, John 1, 1 through 3, he is right now sustaining the world. And then it says in Hebrews 1, 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That one died for you. 
He died for you. He was made in the likeness of men that he might go to the cross for us. We have a wonderful Savior, do we not? And, and I'll just tell you, as I see all those little kids last night mutton busting and doing all that stuff, there were kids everywhere. I think they need to know this doctrine. They, you need to know it so you can teach your kids, and then we need to know it so that we can worship the Savior. Can you believe that Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity, left pre-incarnate glory to come down and die in your place for your sins, to take the wrath that you and I deserved, and he steps in and he takes the full frontal, if you will, of the wrath of God on his life and dies in your place that he might make you a child of God. Here is, beloved, the miracle of the incarnation. 